Okay, take your Bible this morning and turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I know I have a tendency. Most people say, well, you're, you're this way. I have a tendency to be a little long-winded on uh, subjects like what we're dealing with here uh, this morning. Uh and I don't really have a past. We're, we're, we're still, this, is, this lesson will be entitled Introduction to Ephesians Part 2. It's amazing. It takes two, two lessons to get an introduction done. But I think it's imperative that we understand exactly what this epistle means to the children of God. You know, I, I, I've spent most of my life, uh, from my middle 20s on, in organized religion first four or five years as a unbeliever, an unregenerate, though moral, sincere, dedicated religionist, doing everything I could to avoid every known sin and doing everything I possibly could do to do whatever I considered righteousness and holiness and acceptable to the true and living God, the God of my imagination. But I, 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 I grew up in, in Armenian free will religion, and in the mid-80s, the early 80s to the mid-80s, I, I, I changed religions, but I didn't change gods. I moved from a, an Armenian god who wanted to save everybody and couldn't, was trying to save everybody, but he wouldn't violate our free will. In 1981, I got introduced to the Reformed faith, and I became Calvinistic, believing that that God chose a people, that Christ died for those people, that the Holy Spirit will regenerate and convert those people. And all that, that, now listen, those three things I said there, they're true. Those three truths, God the Father chose, Christ the Son died and redeemed, God the Holy Spirit regenerates and converts, are doctrinal truths set forth from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22. Do we believe that? Are we in consensus on that truth? That's the truth of the Scripture. It's not Calvinism per se. It's the gospel. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. But here's the problem. When I change religions, when I move from an Armenian free will works-based religion to Calvinistic religion, I brought one premise over from that old religion that I formerly was in. I thought it was my responsibility to make certain that I did enough, that I gave enough, that I loved enough, that I was becoming a new creature enough. And I lived ever and always in fear that I hadn't done enough, I hadn't gave enough, I hadn't prayed enough, I hadn't changed enough. I was constantly asking myself, where's this new creature at? I had it harped on me over and over and over again. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. And you know what they meant by that new creature. They meant that you're something different now than you were when you first believed. And if there's no change going on, there's no change occurs in your outward character and conduct, you're probably not saved. Now, I want to be very clear. The believer, the justified saint, 
the one drawn by God the Holy Spirit to true faith and true repentance, they do love him because he first loved them. We do strive. I don't you, don't you, or anybody that's watching us, or set, certainly anybody that sat in front of me from any period of time, don't you think for one second that I don't believe it's our responsibility out of grace and gratitude to do our dead level best to do everything we can, everything in our lives for the glory and honor of him who loved us and gave himself for us. The motivation is not, I want to get right so I don't get left. The motivation is this. I have been made the righteousness of God. Based on righteousness, I had no part in producing. A righteousness I have no part in maintaining. A righteousness produced for me through the doing and dying of the Lord Jesus Christ and made mine in such a way that it's actually my righteousness. Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You shall in no case enter into the kingdom of God. That's our motivation. So this truth, you know, they, they, they make it out somehow, some way. Like, doctrine's not that important. Yeah, they, 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 they go by the premise they'd rather see a sermon than hear one. Is that what you want? Yeah. I'd rather see, you know, we, we sang these foolish songs when we were in false religion. One of them was this, they'll know we are Christians. How? By our love. By our love. Do you think an atheist loves his people? Do you think a Muslim, a Muslim mother, a Muslim father doesn't love their mom and dad as much as you loved your mom and dad, love their brothers and sisters as much as you love your brothers and sisters, love all their aunts and uncles and friends and people they encountered as much as you do? Well, are they Christians? They know we are Christians by our love. So it's not, it's not our love. That, listen, how, do, how do I know you're a believer? How do I know you're a Christian? How do you judge Christian brothers? We've got to make that judgment. You realize that, don't you? Right, we, we just went through 1 John not too long ago. In 2 John. In 2 John, what did it say? If any man abide not in the doctrine of Christ, he hath not God. And if any person comes to you with any other doctrine, any other truth, he says to you and me, we're not to bid them Godspeed. In other words, blessings on you, brother. Because if you bid them Godspeed and they're talking about another God, another Christ, another gospel, another way of salvation, what are you? You're a partaker of their evil deeds. So we got to be able to make a judgment. Well, how do we know? How do we know? Well, I'll tell you one thing I've, I've learned over the years. It's not a perfect science. But the only way that I can, I can judge whether or not, according to what the Scriptures tell me, that you're my brother or my sister in Christ is this. What think ye of Christ? And so I ask people, what do you believe? What's your hope? 
And if you tell me, you look at me, and in all honesty and sincerity tell me that you have rested in Christ Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God-man, Emmanuel, you trust in Him, in His righteousness alone. You hear that? His righteousness alone. Without anything from you, your faith, your repentance, some change in your life, you're resting exclusively on what Christ did on your behalf. All I can do is take you at your word. If you believe, what are you? You believe that. Now, I'm not talking about you've accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Get that out of your mind. I tell you what, that's not even scriptural. That, that's something that was man-made. And listen, it ain't been man-made for that long. About 150 years is about all that, accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Paul was never asking anybody to accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. He told them Christ was what? He was Lord of all. Got nothing to do with your acceptance or your rejection. He told them what? Christ put away the sins of his people. Do you believe him? Do you take him at his word? And so if you tell me that's your hope, that's all I can do. You say, well, what about if I, if I commit adultery? Well, David did. <laughs> no, no, don't, I, I know there's people, they, they lose their mind when you talk. Like, but listen, we've got to realize who and what we are. Somebody asked me this week, they said, shouldn't, shouldn't we repent? Well, yeah, we would repent. But, but what's repentance? Huh? The definition of repentance from the scriptures. They told me repentance was what? Remorse and grief over my sin. Is that what repentance is according to the scripture? I know this much. Esau, he sought repentance with strong tears and he found none. He wept about it. So it's not, it's not some, it's not a, a change of direction. See, that's what they told me. They, they, and they, a lot of these reform guys are real subtle with this thing. Is it re true repentance is where you change, it's a change of heart. This is their definition of re repentance. A change of heart that results in a change of direction. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is what? According to the Scripture. Because one... Two things are certain that I know of. First of all, I know faith is a gift. It's not, you, you, you cannot rest in this God unless he gives you faith. It's not something you work up. It's not, I think one of the biggest misconceptions that religion has formulated and propagated in mankind is it's got something to do with our believing. It doesn't. We do believe, but what do we believe? I know whom I have believed. Not, not whom I believed in. I, they add that one word in. I know whom I have believed in. Anyone who says, I know whom I believed. What does that mean? I know whom I believe. I believe what he said. What did he say that I believe? God hath promised us. This is the promise that God hath promised us eternal life and this life is in the sun
That's what we believe. Now again, if that's your hope, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And we can make some serious errors, can we not? I wish I could stand up here. Well, no, I don't. That, that's stupid to even make that statement. Trying to phrase it away to where it won't. I've been, I've been in this faith for 36 years. I've known him for 36 years. Or better, better I, I like it not that I've known him. He's known me. He's loved me to my own mind to where he's revealed his great love to me for about 36 years. And you know what, honestly, I can say? In me, 36 years in, 36 years of preaching this gospel, 36 years of studying this book, 36 years of sporadically, I'm not going to stand here and tell you that your pastor prays every single solitary day. I ought to. And I also know this, him that knoweth to do good and does it not, what is it? It's sin. But the long and the short of it is this, I still have every sinful inclination and problem and difficulty residing in this man, 36 years into this journey, that I had when I first believed. And people say, oh, no, no. Who made that statement? Oh, wretched man that I am. Hmm? The greatest apostle. And he didn't make it. I've had people try to tell me, he was talking about before salvation. No, 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 no. <laughs> that was his cry every single solitary moment of his life. See, the problem is not anything outside of me. The problem of sin is where? Me. Me. I saw this week that our uh, governor, uh, they're, they're all of the right-wing conservative media, and don't get me wrong, I am right-wing, but... This is one thing I don't agree with them on, and I think I got scriptural grounds for it. I don't know if you know it or not, if you keep up with anything. Our, our Democratic governor, along with our Republican senators and representatives, signed into law in the state of Louisiana this week a new law, which I don't see how it's going to pass Constitution anyhow, separation of church and state. They've made it mandatory that every school in the state of Louisiana, in every city, every, every parish, Across this state, what have they got to have in every classroom? In God we trust. <clears throat> the question, which God? I don't want my kids, I didn't want my kids indoctrinated by a government entity, be it school. Now they, can, they can teach them math and science and social studies. They can teach them civic. Don't teach my children religion. Don't teach them about God. I don't want my granddaughter taught about God by that little phrase, in God we trust. What if you have a Muslim principle? See? 
But they think they think that there's something holy about that. That we've we've stepped up to the plate. <clears throat> That's not what made makes you cannot legislate morality. You can't do it. You can't make people righteous in that way. The only way they can be made righteous is by what Paul's writing about here in this book. In this chapter that we're looking, I told you last the last lesson that this epistle of Ephesians that it stands at the forefront is one of the most concise and basic expressions of Christian doctrine as well as Christian ethic. And seeing that's the case, I want us to start this morning, and I want to kind of give you a bird's eye view. And that's what this is, a bird's eye view of true Christian doctrine. I thought about this this morning. I actually wrote this introduction into my notes this morning when I was sitting there. But I, I, I know this much. We've all had well-intentioned religious people tell us it's not what you believe, but it's who you believe in. It's not what you believe. It's who you believe in. And I tell you one thing I found out in 36 years of preaching this gospel doctrinally, dogmatically, and uncompromisingly is this. When lost religious sinners, whether they're my relatives or my friends or my foes, hear us insist on correct scriptural doctrine, you know what their complaint is? Y'all are too intellectual down there. Y'all put too much insistence on knowledge. I know this much. The scriptures, God's complaint was this. My people perish for lack of Knowledge. To them, it's, it's just simply believe. I see it all the time. You do too. If you ever drive on the highways of Louisiana or any other place, you look up and somebody's got in the back window their minivan or their car, whatever, they have one word, believe. My thought always when I see that word believe by itself is believe what? Believe the earth's round? Believe that men are men and women are women? I mean, what, what are we talking about? Believe. And they, they think that's their Christianity. And in reality, that is their Christianity. That's the problem. That's the best that they've got. But here's the thing. And I was looking back at this this morning. That's why I wrote this little short introduction. You think, well, that, you don't give me a 30-minute word introduction. I find it interesting that in the opening 14 verses of this book, Ephesians, the epistle to the Ephesians, that Paul wrote to these people who were formerly pagans, who had believed the gospel, had heard the gospel from the apostle Paul, he declares to them in these 14 verses, just 14, the 14 first verses of, of Ephesians chapter 1, he declares to them the same message he preached in every place that he went, filled with every doctrinal truth by which God calls all his elect to true faith and true repentance. When he was about to leave these Ephesian brethren, he had spent three years there with them. When he was about to leave, he told them this. He had called the elders together and he said this, and, I, and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you. What? Nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly 
And from house to house, I taught you not only in public, but what I do? I taught you in, in your home, in private, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks. Repentance toward God. That's the other word, change your mind about what removes God's wrath and gains God's favor. And it actually it reads, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you, you look at a literal translation of it, Paul says to them, repentance toward God, even faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Rest in Him. And so he wrote to those at Rome. Let me, let me read you this, Patty. When he wrote to those at Rome, if doctrine's not that important, he made a big ubu here because he said, but God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Literally translated that, you look it up in Young's Literal, you break it down, go to Strong's and look at the words for yourself. Literally translated, you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine by which you have been delivered. What delivered us? That form of doctrine. What form of doctrine? Here it is. Being then made free from sin. When? When you believe that form of doctrine by which you're delivered. Now that's what we're going to talk about in just a second. But you became something you weren't before. Servants of righteousness. Think about it now. Everything you did before God revealed himself to you and in you, no matter how noble it was, no matter how moral it was, no matter how much men and women of the same religious uh, fraternity that you came out from applauded you for it? What was it? All of it. According to the scripture. Why? You were unrighteous. Being unrighteous, what can you do? Unrighteousness. Your prayers, unrighteous prayers. See, that's what's wrong with that sinner prayer thing. All you got to do is say the sinner prayer. We know this, that, that, that blind guy that had been blind all his life, that our Lord Jesus Christ had restored his sight to him, he said to those Jews, those scribes and Pharisees, we know, he, he looked at him, you know, we know, we know that God heareth not sinner's prayers. So how are you going to cry out to him if he hears not sinner's prayers? There's a method to the way God does, son. Now look at what he says here. I, the, these first 14 verses, and I'll give you this real quick, I promise. It, it, this, these first 14 verses talk about one thing. It sets forth for us the glory of God in redemption. This book, in its entirety, is a book of redemption. And redemption means this, Forgiveness. Forgiveness based on a just ground. And you think about it. Nowhere in God's word do we find such a full and comprehensive account of the particulars. Right here at the beginning. He didn't, he didn't talk about a lot of things and then easily slide into this doctrinal truth. He starts off with it. And I tell you what, I guarantee you, and I, I'm the same way. Any, anybody that preaches the gospel the same way. The newborn babe in Christ, what do they need to hear? This truth. The one that's been growing in grace for a while, what do they need to hear? This truth. 
The one who's lived 36 or more years in this gospel truth, what do they need to hear? They need these things constantly confirmed to their mind and to their understanding. And you think about in the opening verses, any verses we're given insight into the mystery of God's will concerning His goal, right here at the beginning. His goal to glorify Himself not only in the salvation of His people, but also, you know what God's going to do one day? He's going to completely restore a new heaven and a new earth. And it's not going to be like this one we're living in. (laughs) It's not. In these opening verses, you know what God's doing? He's shining forth in our hearts to reveal the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of His dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you, this is the theme of the Bible in general. This is the theme of this book of Ephesians, specifically. Look at verse 6. Here's why He did it this way. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Find yourself there. Show me what you've done. Show me your faith. Show me your repentance. Show me your good works. All I see is He did it this way, what? To the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He, He, this God, He made us accepted in the Beloved. Look down at verse 12. That we should be, here it is again, What are we for? What are those who are sinners by birth, by nature, by practice, and even by choice, those who are formerly enemies in their mind by wicked work, who were by nature children of wrath, even in others? What's so wonderful about God in Christ saving and redeeming some of them? Here it is, to the praise of His glory of His grace. I saw... Man wants to save this place. And I'm talking about the dirt we're living on. <laughs> I was telling Pam right before I came here, I saw that our president and the Department of Energy, they're going to sign a, he's going to sign an executive order on tomorrow morning that's going to, it's going to benefit Louisiana, folks. I mean, that just thrills me to death. In Louisiana and Texas, you know what they're, they're fixing to establish in Louisiana and Texas? By this, they're going to spend $1.2 billion in Louisiana and Texas to create two big vacuums to vacuum CO2 out of the air so we can reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Too big. They're going to suck it and they're going to put it in the ground and store it in the ground. That's what they're going to do. Do these folks not realize you take the CO2? What, what, do, what do plants live off of? Huh? What do they got to have to live? All the trees that we see, that they're, they're all them tree huggers, we got to save all the trees. What do those trees need? They don't live off of oxygen. They live off of CO2, and in turn, what do they produce? I actually paid attention in biology and science. They give off O2. They take in CO2, give off O2. See, here's the thing. They want to save this place. And the sad thing is, they can't save this place. And I'll tell you another thing. They can't destroy this place either. I tell you, it's the height 
of self-righteous pride to think that puny man can stop what a sovereign God has determined. I ain't worried about this. If this place is supposed to spin off its axis, you know why it's going to spin off its axis? It ain't because I, I run too much gas through my car. God says it's time. But I know he's not going to do that because he's promised us that as long as this place exists, what are we going to have? We're going to have four seasons. We're going to have seed time and harvest till he ends this thing. But that's their problem. They, want, they think that they can save it, and they think God wants, their God does want to save it. They have created religion out of climate change is what they've done. This thing is here for one reason. What? The praise of the glory of His grace. That's what we're here for. Elect, reprobate. We're here to the praise of the glory of His grace. Look at verse 14. Which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession until He brings us all home. For what reason? Unto the praise of of the glory of His grace. It, it, it is all about Him. All about Him. You think about it. In these verses that I just read to you, we're told that the goal of the work of God the Father, because He breaks it down into three sections, and we'll see that when we start looking at these verses individually next Sunday. We see the goal of the work of God the Father, the goal of the work of God the Son and the work of God the Holy Spirit in the salvation of sinners is one, is singular. What? That God the Father's redemptive glory is magnified and honored throughout all eternity. People say, well, hold on now. You're talking about God the Father is going to be glorified throughout eternity. What about God the Son? Well, think about it. What I just said to you that, that this is all about glorifying and honoring the Father's redemptive character. It does not detract from Christ's preeminence because His preeminence is our mediator and our surety and our representative depended upon what? His success in doing what? Glorifying the Father. You say, well, how do you get that? How do you come to that conclusion? Well, I listen to what my Lord Jesus Christ said. He said, this. These words spake Jesus, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, ours come, glorify thy son, that thy son may also glorify thee. As thou hast given him power, authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Here's the kick. I have glorified thee on the earth. Who did he glorify? Himself? No, he glorified the Father. I have finished the work that you gave me to do. And I love this part of our Lord's priestly prayer. And now, O Father, the Father that he's glorified by fulfilling the work that the Father gave him to do, he said, Now, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self. Glorify me with thine own self with the glory which I had with you before he did any of it. Before the world was. What does that tell you? 
it, it's the fulfillment of what Paul said over, the writer of Hebrews said over in the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ the same yesterday. Where's that? When he was eternal with the Father, Son, and the Holy, Father and the Holy Spirit. Today, the day in which we live, and forever. So what does that tell me? Like the Father, Christ didn't change. Everything he did here, by his work of obedience unto death, as glorious as it is and as it glorified the Father, it does not change his essential glory. He is the same. Man acts like somehow or another, that whatever we do somehow changes him. Oh, no, no. <laughs> He's the same. Has the same glory. And I'll tell you this one. You let anybody who promotes ignorance in the name of humility and who ridicule true knowledge, let them take note of what verse 9 says. Having made known unto us the mystery of his will. Who? Everyone God redeemed. Everyone the Father loves. Everyone the Son redeemed. Everyone the Holy Spirit regenerates and converts. What does he do to every one of them? Having made known unto them, unto us, the elect of God, the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. I tell you, I relish those things, don't you? It's not a thing of pride. I know people, y'all are so prideful. Y'all think y'all the only ones that are saved. No, we're, we're concerned about one thing. I'm, I'm not even concerned about my salvation. I'm concerned about what? The glory of God. Now, I'm grateful that I am one of his elect and that he has saw fit to choose me in Christ and redeem me through the blood of his Son, regenerate and convert me by his Holy Spirit. But I'm grateful he glorified and honored himself in, as a just God and a Savior more than anything else. Not unto us. Not unto us, but unto him belongs all glory and honor and praise world without end. But you let, let them say, well, you know, the ignorance. Well, look, he, he made known to us his will. God, God has purposed in himself to make known to all heirs of promise the great mystery of his will. What's the great mystery of his will? Look at verse 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all, how many? All spiritual blessings in heavenly places, in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Go back and read those verses. And read them over and over and over and over again and pay attention to them. God the Father reveals he alone, the Father, is the source and originator of salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. He, God the Father, has supplied every necessary means to accomplish this goal. 
God the Father has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. You think he chose us. We didn't choose him. He predestinated us. There's that big word, but it's a scriptural word. Predestinated us to be adopted sons and daughters of God. And listen, here's the best one. He hath made us accepted in Christ. He did it. And he did it in a way of justice. And you see in verse 4, not only did God as the is not only did God as the source and originator take the initiative in salvation, but verse 4 tells us his love, you think about it, his love is the only cause of our salvation. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. And if I've told you this before, if, if you wasn't here when I said it, I'm going to say it again for you. The comma actually goes there, or period actually goes there. The next sentence begins with those two words, in love, having predestinated us. In love, having predestinated us. Now look up here and think about this. Nothing outside of God himself influenced him to choose or save anybody. I think this has become my, one of my favorite verses. I've quoted it over and over, and I've memorized it, and it means so much to me. And not only this, but when Rebecca had also conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it's written, Jacob have I loved. How long? From all eternity. Esau have I hated. I like this one. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Now think about who we're dealing with. We're talking about Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the ending. One who's not regulated by time. And he said he's loved us, his people, with an everlasting love. There's never been a time God didn't love his people. But here's the thing, he always loved us where? In Christ. In Christ. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. And here's the thing, having set his love on us in Christ, he loved us when we fell in Adam into a state of wrath and condemnation and alienation. And we also see something else, that God's love is his purpose to save sinners conditioned on his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are absolutely, positively holy. I still hear in my mind, and I will hear it until the Lord takes away my mind, I hear Henry yelling at the top of his lungs, talking about the attributes of God. And you know the one attribute of God that permeates and regulates every other attribute of our God? God is love. Everybody stress that. Oh, God is love. He is. God is a God of wrath. Yes, he is. God is omniscient. He's omnipresent, right? He's all these things. You go through all, every one of, I've heard these guys talk about that God's like a diamond. I Go ahead and, try to compare him to things of time and sin. He has these attributes that make him who he is. 
But every one of them are, are regulated by this one. God is a God of love, but His love is what kind of love? A holy love. His wrath is what kind of wrath? A holy wrath. See, ours is regulated by and affected by things outside. I, I, God, this God hates perfectly based on strict law and justice. He doesn't hate like, you know, we get our feelings hurt at somebody, well, I hate you. Why? Because you did something wrong to me. God hates because what? You have not met the standard of a righteousness that glorifies and honors him. And since you don't have that righteousness in yourself, the only thing he can do is what? He's not going to let anything unclean get into the kingdom of heaven. He's not. We see one other thing, and we'll close with this. We also see that God's love is his purpose to save sinners conditioned on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God reveals that he did it one way. He did it based on Christ's righteousness. It's only hope calls of salvation. And here's the thing. Christ's righteousness becomes ours in time because of our union. And the goal of it's all revealed in these first 14 verses. The first section, I think is verses 3 through verse 8, it's the work of the Father. The second is verses 9, I think, I, I might be wrong, it's, it's the work of God the Son. And the last part of these first 14 verses, it's the work of God the Holy Spirit. It breaks them down, all three persons, the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They all have a part in our redemption. And they all do it in a way that glorifies and honors them as both a just God and a Savior. Now, we'll come back next week and we'll pick up and we will actually begin to look at verses next week. We'll look at verses 1 and 2. You dismiss the worship. I appreciate your presence.